Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here, um, and I am delighted to be able to spend the next few minutes with uh, quite an influential scholar and lucid dreamer in the Western world, Ryan Hurd. So let me tell you a little bit about who Ryan is, and then we're just going to jump right in discussing what I think you will find to be uh, just a, a host of really provocative topics. So Ryan is a dream researcher, author, and educator. He's the author of Sleep Paralysis and co-editor with Kelly Buckley of Lucid Dreaming. It's a two-volume set, um, New Perspectives on Consciousness and Sleep, as well as several full-length e-books. Ryan is a lecturer in psychology and holistic studies at John F. K. University as part of their online consciousness studies program. He has been invited to lecture at many academic venues, including Stanford. His work has been featured on NPR, CNN, TED Med, Psychology Today, and other media venues. Ryan's dream research blog, dreamstudies.org, is also one of the most popular dream research blogs in the world. Now, I wanted to toss this in, Ryan, because I came across this in your, um, on your site, which I thought was pretty cool. Quote, my chief aim is to help bring about a new dreaming culture that integrates the best of 21st century thought with the intuitive ways of knowing prized by our ancestors dreams, visions, and imagination, end quote. So I thought that was a pretty cool um, kind of summation of your charter. And one of the reasons I'm so um, happy to have you on board, and, and I have to say it personally, Ryan, that your work, what you, especially the two volumes that you did with Kelly, I would say is one of the great contributions uh, in the Western world to the topic of lucid dreaming altogether. The, this anthology I've read several times, it's chock full of the most amazing contributions by um, scholars, scientists, researchers, and the like from around the world. So terrific job on that, and thank you so much for, for cranking that out, and thanks so much for spending some time with us. We appreciate it. Yeah, oh, well, thanks for having me, Andrew, and thanks for the warm words about that anthology, which I always regret is so expensive for the average reader, and so I always tell people, print out, you know, the, the sheet and take it to your librarian uh, yeah. because that's really what we're trying to do is get this volume into libraries so more and more people can read it because it is, unfortunately, you know, as an academic two-volume set, it's it's pretty pricey. Yeah, but I have to say, as, as, a, as a student of this field, it's worth every penny. I mean, uh, the, what, what you were able to collate together here is, is really a remarkable contribution. And so before we get into some of that uh, maybe have deeper dive aspects of, of this amazing field. If you don't mind spending just a few minutes sharing with us, I always like to start this um, this way with giving us a short riff on your personal journey. Like what got you so jazzed about lucid dreaming? Wow. Okay, sure. So I've been a lucid dreamer for probably most of my life. I, I mean, my first memories of hypnagogic experiences were probably around age six or seven or so. And I would, basically my method of going to sleep would be to close my eyes and to wait for the wonderful, you know, the cosmic dots, all those beautiful multicolor images to arise. And then if the if everything was aligned correctly, those dots would become three-dimensional and become a vortex. And then I would enter the vortex and fall asleep and this was something that I would try to do when I was when I was young as a way of relaxing and going to sleep 
And the larger picture of that was, is that point I was beginning to have lots of nightmares. And so I was trying to take control of my thought processes as I went into sleep because going to sleep is, you know, can be very challenging if you're nightmare prone. Uh, that's where we, that's where it all comes out, right? That's yeah. where we all feel the most unprotected. So, so my lucidity and this kind of t- continued to be a trend for me. Lucidity, especially in adolescence and um, young adulthood, was always not always, but it was tethered to my relationship to nightmares. Mm-hmm. I would become lucid during a nightmare. Um, I would use my lucidity to beat back the nightmare or wake myself up, you know, and basically that first sort of primal sense of power would be to, to say no and, uh, you know, to not accept this. And, and so it was really about, you know, achieving some power uh, over my own, you know, scene in my own um, field. Uh, and, and, of course, I had some wonderful lucid dreams as well at the time and and then with with sexual maturity i mean that's a whole that's a whole thing we can talk about at length i'm sure um about how lucid dreaming and sexuality really um can be uh they're really prized for each other it seems uh the mind really goes there easily uh and so for me i i've always you know i continue to to be interested in my dreams i've kept a dream journal since i was 14 uh, so I have about 30 years now of dream journals, and I always wanted to study it, but I in, I guess it was about halfway through college when I became very interested in trying to get grounded rather than going into dreams more, and I almost feel like this is, my life seems to be set up in this polar way where the dreams tend to want to take me out of my body and, and and far off and, you know, in sort of expansiveness. And then when I feel like I have too much of that and I'm getting soggy in a way, mm-hmm. I, I, I have this urge to get grounded. And so I became very interested in the field of archaeology yeah. uh, and cultural resource management and very material existential concerns. Uh, and so I ended up graduating um, with a degree in archaeology and I became a field archaeologist for a number of years. Uh, and I really did get grounded through that work, and it was healing. And then while that was happening, then the dreams began coming up, come up again and percolating again. Uh, and, and I said, you know what, I've, I've got to study this further too. And so that's when I went back to school uh, to study consciousness studies at John F. Kennedy University, where I got a master's degree. Um, and it, it was a wonderful time about 15 years ago when there were so many dream experts, scholars, researchers, dream workers. They're, they're still there, too, many of them in the Bay Area of you know San Francisco and California. Um, but at John F. Kennedy, that was just a hot time. And we had so many rich discussions and, and classes. And uh, I just felt like I got just this wonderful education. Uh, and so, yeah, since since then, I've been you now doing this mission of public education for for dreaming, and 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 I do still find that my work with nightmares is one of my touchstones, especially in the lucid dreaming community, because I feel like it's something that's often not talked about as much and perhaps misunderstood, um, avoided. 
uh, denied that it even exists to some extent. Um, and so part of my work has been to, to try to hold that up as that this is an important part of the phenomena. Uh, and there's lots of potential in it. And so that is still to this day something I'm always, you know, um, when I, when someone emails me who's having trouble with nightmares, they're the ones that I email back first, you know, they're the yeah. ones who are suffering the most. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you know, one of the things that really intrigues me about your work, Ryan, is just how um, far-ranging it is. You know, I mean, you're you're one of these kind of integral, integrated um, theorists, thinkers, um, scholar, practitioners. It really resonates with my own approach. I mean, really, you cover the range from from science to spirituality, from neural phenomenology to non-duality, and and that just rocks. I mean, that's where you can get the best of the East and the West. And and I was also really, it's interesting. You know, you're your interest in archaeology, both inner and outer, because I, I, I'm sure you would completely agree that these explorations with the nocturnal mind, in certain sense, are kind of like... Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so the internal archaeology, or um, the dreaming archaeology, as, as Robert Moss has called it, where we kind of go spelunking <laughs> into our own, Absolutely. Into our own nether regions. It's so it's so true. And and by do, in doing field work, and doing... Um, and really being steeped in the world of, of you know, treasures, really, it's kind of created this really rich uh, archetypal language for my own personal dream that I just love. I, I'm, you know, I'm still consistently finding, for instance, in my dreams, I'll, I'll see you know, a, a quartz, you know, by, you know, blade that's Paleolithic in origin. And as I'm investigating it in the dream, I become lucid because it's just so marvelous. And so it's like the the ancient tools in the dreams actually help wake me up. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really, you're, in your contribution, Ryan, I have to say, um, in the two volumes set, you know, the title, of, of course, is Unearthing the Paleolithic, Paleolithic Mind in Lucid Dreamings. I thought it was bloody brilliant. I mean, if you can paraphrase, and I know it's difficult because you just cover so much terrain in that, but if you could paraphrase a little bit about um, this aspect of your own work, I, I think people would find it really compelling. And then what I want to do is turn to what I feel is one of your seminal contributions in this field is the, the willingness and the courage to explore some of the dark sides of lucid dreaming. Because as, as we both know, it's pretty sexy, easy to sell the entertainment aspect of lucid dreaming and, and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, where, wherever you find light, you will find shadows. And I want mm -hmm. to talk more about those shadows and especially your work with lucid nightmares and, and the like. But before we do that, give people just a, a taste of what you contributed to this amazing anthology by talking a little bit about this paleolithic mind. So, so this concept of the paleolithic mind is, is, is to be a metaphor uh, in, in the sense that when we enter into lucid dreaming, lucid dreaming is, an, is a state of consciousness that's been around a long time, and we, you know, sense the time when we were painting on caves 200,000 years ago as a species, and maybe before that, and and having visited some of these paleolithic caves you know i'm i'm convinced that some of them really are bringing in these projections dream projections um cave space is dream space and and whatnot yeah. uh but in in the sense that it's it's ancient uh it's also culture so culturally variable and that there's no one right way to lucid dream 
there's no one way to go about it. And almost everything that we even define lucid dreaming by is almost an assumption, um, which is, gets difficult when you look into the ethnography, trying to find other cultures who practice you know, self-awareness while dreaming, because in some of these cultures, there's an assumption that people know that they're dreaming a good part of the time because they have an integrated culture where they do dream sharing and they do lots of mythologies and storytelling and they just it's easier because there's cultural support for lucidity whereas from our culture it's kind of this right. it's seen as right a an anomaly that there's you know consciousness or awareness in the dream state and that's our and so we have to fight kind of uphill i think as westerners against um this sort of sorry story we've been told about how dreams, um, we don't have much to do with it. Um, and that it just, they happen to us when clearly, you know, as Scott Sparrow says, you know, there, it's a co-creative landscape. You know, we enter into the dream and we're entering into a relationship with this dynamic field. Uh, and stuff emerges spontaneously, we react to it, our reactions, you know, cause a, a million different kinds of things to unfold. Uh, and so you can see how the cultural variability would be, be so huge uh, and with that. And so, and so one of the things that I talk about in that chapter about the Paleolithic mind is, is that lucid dreaming in terms of its interest in personal development is... There's aspects of it that are popular right now and aspects of it that are not so popular. And it kind of comes down to the, there's always discussion and, and, and rightfully so a, a focus on how can we be expansive and transpersonal and enter into light like spaces and sort of, the, you know, move beyond ourselves. And, but there's also kind of hidden in these dreams possibilities when soul ducks down into itself mm -hmm. and rather than expansive transpersonal experiences, we essentially have morbid existential, um, provocative, emotional, psychosexual experiences. You know, you know, the, the realm of Tantra, for instance, that takes us in a different direction. And, and because we're Westerners and we're, not very comfortable with our bodies and we live in a patriarchy and we're not comfortable with women's bodies. Um, there's, there's a lot of stuff that gets sort of, you know, polluted with the idea of what is spirituality. Yep. Uh, and so sort of all of these sort of shamanic angles, which is really, you know, embodied spirituality, um, being in relationship with nature, um, emotionality as a source of power, not something to fight against to become clear, but to to harness and to purify in its own right. These kind of capabilities are often not discussed seriously in yeah. lucid dreaming, and that's and so I use the Paleolithic mind as a metaphor to say, look, there's we have these these um, shamanic states, and then we have these meditative states, and lucid dreaming is really you know, a, a portal into many other ways of being. And so which way do you want to go? Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, in my, in my kind of cartography of what I refer to as the nocturnal meditations, I have this kind of Hegelian transcend but include model. It's just my schema where lucid dreaming is really a platform into dream yoga, which can be a platform into sleep yoga, which can be a platform into bardo yoga with each one 
transcending but including its predecessor. But, you know, you, you hit on so many incredibly provocative topics already. I mean, you know, one is, you know, the difference between our monophasic Western culture um, and this really incredibly restricted, myopic, limited way of looking at mind and especially dream. And then with Charles Laughlin, you know, with both uh, fans of his work, mm -hmm. what he writes about is polyphasic cultures and how of the 4,000, outside of the, you know, Western European cultures, there are some 4,000 cultures around the world and uh, like 90% of them honor dreams as much as they honor waking reality. And so the Western view is actually in the minority. We, we have this kind of uh, restricted, utterly restricted view that I would argue is based on um, subliminal wake centricity, sight centricity is all in the service mm -hmm. of egocentric, um, you know, kind of trajectories that really limit, I think, partly because the egoic mind is afraid of the dark. It's afraid, you know, dark being a code, code word for the unconscious mind or for even ignorance, that, that the egoic mind is afraid of, of the dark. And so we then, the egoic mind then kind of colonizes and dismisses other states of consciousness it can't fully experience. And it's, it's typically in line with the Western way, which is what scientism does to science. You know, we just shut out yes. all these other ways of looking at it. And that's what's so cool about what you're doing is you, your, your javelin is thrown so far and so wide that you bring in and kind of update this outdated operating system that we have in the West that really is, um, you know, pardon me, the further play on the word is still stuck in the dark ages. Um, yeah, so, you know, right. Yeah, no, go ahead. Uh, so, I mean, what you were saying about how about colonizing really strikes a chord with me, and, and that's something that that I've been wrestling with for quite some time is how, you know, can we be lucid without um, colonizing the dream space, that's right. uh, which is something that as Western dreamers, essentially it's just in the water. Basically, you can't, you have to address it because it's it's just... It's in the it's in the in the code, um, you know. And and as American dreamers, manifest destiny is is in the code. Um, yeah. You know, we have the sense that we're explorers, you know, in a vast wilderness, and we're you know swashbuckling our way through it. Um, hey, it turns out there's already people living here. That's you right. Know? <laughs> That's exactly right. And, you know, uh, it's not you know. Yeah. And as you know, this is one reason that that Carl Jung. Um, was reluctant to endorse lucid dreaming because he saw it as, as a, a potential for egoic self-aggrandizement, you know, where where the ego then just colonizes the dream state yet again. Um, and so I think these kind of warnings are really important for uh, intrepid explorers of the, of the nocturnal mind. Because we yeah, because he was right. <laughs> exactly. It's happening. Yeah, it's to it's totally true, and 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 of course the myths of that line of thinking and lucid dreaming continuously gets repeated in through just the marketing language that yeah. that book publishers use to publish our own books about lucid dreaming, which can even have the opposite message. But nonetheless, we get kind of thrown back into that strange, you know, frontier consciousness. Um, where you know we can do anything we want, you know, and um, and it, it's it's hard. I feel like that that's one of the central problems, I guess, or you know, uh, untruths about lucid dreaming that I'm that I'm always um, trying to bring back up is what what is this about control and why is this yeah. so important? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's again, that's just the ego's agenda, and and that's what makes your 
your work unique, uh, Ryan, is, you know, your guys, as we cut through this underbrush, come from the ancient um, traditions as well as modern science. And so the ability to draw on, on both of these, I think, instills your work with a type of um, comprehensiveness that, that really resonates with me. But I, I want to talk to you because you are, you are really quite savvy in this area uh, about the, the dark sides of lucid dreaming. Um, and in particular, we can morph this quite nicely into your really elegant work on lucid nightmares. But talk to us a little bit more. You, know, you write about how it is that something that has this kind of power to cure um, all the the uh, benefits that are highly touted, and I have to say, I tout them myself. Because if if you don't kind of uh, explore the benefits, then why bother? Um, so I think the benefits do need to be touted, but at the same time, we, I think there's a little bit of uh, devil's advocacy involved here because we can overinvest and realize that there are some shadow elements to this journey. So could speak to us a little bit about that, and also uh, interject a little bit of your own personal experience and how you work with your nightmares in this regard. Sure. So, so yeah, like I've said, nightmares, you know, tend to find me. Um, at least they, they did in the first half of life quite often. Um, and one of the things that I kept running into was almost this sense of shame that I would have a lucid dream but not be able to be in control of what was happening. Um, because by my own limited definitions of what lucid dreaming is, is that by lucid I should have have this power um, and and so I began clumsily trying to wield power over nightmares and it's totally unsuccessfully most of the time I mean so when we're younger it's important and I should say this the beginning is, is that people who are having lucid nightmares it's important to be able to to realize okay this is a dream and I can wake myself up and to, and to work on that eject button and, and know that it's in your back pocket. And so that's the kind of thing that I, you know, developed when I was, when I was a teen. And that's what I would do. I would essentially be like, oh, I don't want to go here. And then uh, I would bounce. That's super healthy. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with bouncing yep. out of a dream if you're, not, if you're in the moment. Because this is our own experiences. And we're often doing this, you know, self-work and so you have to go with your gut feeling on that um, that said you know over time i learned the value of staying put uh, rather than sort of flying away every time there was conflict but rather what happens if i sit and sweat a little mm -hmm. bit mm -hmm. uh, and 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 this kind of wraps into bigger questions that has less to do with lucidity and more has to do with sort of the, well, the function of dreams and, and the workings of the psyche, which is that the longer we stay put, the more we <laughs> will come into conflict. That's right. Um, and it's inevitable. Um, and once we face that conflict, though, other processes begin to happen. And, and it's not a quick fix, but we begin to, you know, work towards resolutions um, and, and it happens. And so, uh, often, and there's, you know, there's emotions are a smoke shield and, and in dream space, an emotion becomes a visual smoke shield. Our own fear project, we project onto the projections. So there's something spontaneous, autonomous that, that is now in our space and we're in relationship with it. But the fear that I project onto this, this entity, this truly this other 
can really, you know, make a difference um, about how I interact with that and which way that this interaction can go. And so I think Charlie Morley says it really well about lucid dreamings, about getting to, to love yourself. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really wonderful way to encapsulate the idea and he, with his Buddhist perspective as well. Uh, on the lucid nightmare front, this is this is the process that I began working with too. Is is sitting with the other and being open to having a conversation or an exchange or whatever kind of energetically needs to happen, and um, and learning that sometimes it's okay to surrender. Yeah, and that sometimes it's okay to fight. And there's, I, I really can't say that there's, you know, there's the one way to do it or one way not to do it. Um, we just sort of bumble along till we find what works for us um, as we develop. And we know we're on the right track when we wake up from a dream and we feel a sense of buzz or energy. And, and then the dreams kind of tend to come back anyway, because that's the psyche. And so we'll have repetitions. We, we know we're going to have another chance. And it might not be next week. It might be a year down the, the road, but we'll have another chance. And we have to kind of just lean into that a little bit and be like, well, I did my best <laughs> with, with that one. And we'll see what happens next time. But there's a real value to it. One of the, one of the more profound nightmares that is coming to mind for me right now is that I used to be um, plagued with dreams of bullies and, and so I would, you know, I would become lucid in the dream and then there would become a, a pack of, a pack of boys or men who would run after me and, 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 you know, try to shoot me or throw, you know, rocks at me and this kind of thing. Um, and, and this is just one of my dream themes. It's one of my, now it's my, one of my ways of knowing, oh, this is a dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so in one, in one dream I had, and this probably was about a decade ago or so, I, was, yeah, I was being thrown, again, rocks were being thrown at me, and there was one particular character who, I'm looking at him, and I just see how much hatred he has for me, and I tell him, or mentally tell him, however it works in a dream, and say, I'm going to sit with you, and we're going to talk about this, and we sit down on the bench together, and I just decide, I'm going to just continue to be open, and to love love him even though he hates me yeah um and find out what that's about and and i'm looking at him and as i'm kind of going through this process because this is super terribly uncomfortable and i mean i feel so vulnerable and i just want to eject but i don't and i'm looking at him and i see that he's sweating he's sweating like he's doing hard work oh he's sweating bullets um and uh and 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 i tell him uh i love you and and when i do that and he looks at me suddenly i have the urge to throw up and in the dream i throw up Hmm. and i just there's just this suddenly you know so i vomit all over the place and 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 the dream diffuses and and i awake with this 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 wonderful clear feeling wow and yeah i I mean it's just beautiful i mean the, the 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 throwing up is really is a form of cleaning up. And, and the integral theory, as you know, that's one of the lingos they use to work, um, to talk about working with shadow projection and shadow elements. And so, and you said a number of things here that really buzzed me a little bit in a good way. One is, couldn't agree more with what, what our mutual friend Charlie Morley 
uh, talks about, you know, in terms of love and nightmare, because I think this also applies very much to establishing a relationship to mind in meditation. And, and again, when you really think about what are dreams made of, well, dreams are made of your mind. And, and one of my central maxims as a meditation instructor for 30 years is, fun, is really fundamentally love your mind, be open to the contents of your mind, because children are the thoughts I should say thoughts are the children of your mind. Dreams are the children of your mind. And unless you're a pretty, you know, perverse parent, you're not going to throttle your kids, even when they're being unruly and throwing tantrums. If you're a good parent, you're, you're going to embrace them and create a, uh, as they say in Shambhala Buddhism, a cradle of loving kindness that allows that, that uh, particular energy to be um, kind of integrated and dissipated. But I want to return to one thing you said that struck me when you talked about the appearances and these disquieting dreams as other, and and to actually pose to you, is it really other? I mean, is it not, or could it not be just as viable to refer to those experiences as disenfranchised aspects of our unconscious self? Um, they're coming back for integration, for healing, and for holding. And and in that regard, again, completely resonant with this idea of loving the children of your mind. And so mm-hmm. we talk about other, I think, provisionally because it is other in this kind of internal sense, but fundamentally, as we know, if we're talking about true non-duality, there is no other. Um, and so this is perhaps a way to even puncture that illusion slash delusion at the level of, of the dream reality. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, and and But I try to always stick to that phenomenological experience of, of otherness uh, because we experience it in waking life, too with other sentient humans um, and we project onto them as well with the same regularity as we do our own dream characters and of course like right in our own dreams we might have the lucidity to say to a dream character well you're not real you're a part of my unconscious mind but thanks for listening you can listen to the full interview by joining nightclub lucid dreaming and dream yoga community Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.